Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop Podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Can the migrant detention centers employed by the Trump administration on the U.S.-Mexico border be legitimately labeled as concentration camps? Earlier this year, the New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez made that claim in an Instagram video, and what resulted was a firestorm of controversy. Among the voices raised in protest was that of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. In a remarkable statement that never mentioned Ocasio-Cortez by name, the museum, quote, unequivocally rejected efforts to create analogies between the Holocaust and other events, whether historical or contemporary. So what is a concentration camp? In what circumstances are the use of the phrase legitimate, and when does it obscure more than it reveals? Dan Stone is Professor of Modern History and Director of the Holocaust Research Institute at Royal Holloway University of London. His most recent book, Concentration Camps, A Very Short Introduction, explores the rise and spread of the concentration camp as an organic development of modern states. The questions it raises about power and genocide are also guiding his current project, a study of the International Tracing Service, set up by the Allies after the war to locate people dispersed by Nazi persecution. I spoke to Dan Stone in his office in London. I wanted to ask if we could start with a deceptively simple question of Mm -hmm. what is a concentration camp. It's actually an extremely hard question, as you know, because I think the image of a concentration camp that comes to people's minds is, I suppose, Dachau. The fixed installation, the forbidding gate with the ironic slogan, the watchtowers, the barbed wire, um, the guards, the, the spotlights, and so on. And I think in some ways that, that model works in many other locations, um, but it's less a question, I think, of the building itself, the site, but the conditions under which people are held that mark something out as a concentration camp rather than, let's say, an internment camp for refugees or a displaced persons camp um, or a prison. So in a prison, people are uh, held because they're convicted of a crime. And in the case of a concentration camp, people are civilians, that means not uh, combatants, are held even though they haven't committed a crime, precisely because a particular regime suspects them of usually some kind of innate crime. They're innately politically suspect, they're medically suspect, they're racially suspect in in some way. And so they're held without their consent, without uh, due regard to the law. And I think the really crucial thing here, uh, this is difficult, I think, and is obviously not the only way in which one can define a concentration camp, but I think what's really crucial is that the people held there have no recourse to law. So there's nobody to represent them. The regime that holds them does not allow them access to lawyers and so on. I know that that's a difficult distinction to make because that would exclude from the definition, for example, uh, internment centres for Japanese Americans during World War II, which are regularly referred to as concentration camps and in many respects are like concentration camps. But I think if you have to come down 
one side or another. Ultimately, I would say they were not concentration camps in the sense that the people there were not totally abandoned by the law. It doesn't. It's not, in every other respect, it's not meant to suggest that the conditions that they were held in were pleasant, or it's not meant to suggest that holding them at all was a good idea. Um, just to try and think about what marks specifically the difference between a concentration camp and other sorts of conditions where people are held against their will. And could you say something about the history of the, the term and the mm-hmm. background to what we mm-hmm. think of as the kind of archetypal camps? Yes. Second World War? In a way, that's a little bit easier because we can trace the term itself back to colonial wars in the late 19th century, turn of the 20th century. Um, so the, the Spanish in Cuba spoke of uh, zones of reconcentration, which is not the same as a concentration camp, but the use of the term reconcentration i.e. removing people from where they'd lived before and placing them in these zones where they could be controlled, a process which we see throughout 20th century colonial history with villagization and so on, the resettlement, forced resettlement of, of peoples for the convenience of the colonial power uh, becomes quite common. But the, the term concentration camp then, which I think derives perhaps a little bit from the uh, reconcentration notion, comes really from uh, the Boer War. Uh, and is used in, in by the British in South Africa. But it gets picked up then very quickly. So uh, that term is very rapidly translated into German and into Russian, and the uh, other European powers comment on the fact, they, they note in the press the existence of these concentration camps, and then they start to use the term uh, for their own camps that they, that they produce. So, for example, the Germans, they create a couple of camps after World War I that they specifically call uh, Konzentrationslager, and which are sites for... Uh, stateless Eastern European Jews. So this term uh, is taken up by, on, I suppose it's one way in which there's a sort of transnational history of concentration camps that different regimes are learning from, from one another and as the idea of separating out people, making them stateless or denying them recourse to law in the 20th century becomes more common, you see this practice reoccurring across uh, different different regimes in different settings. Mm. And and can you say a bit more about the kind of structural underpinnings, why mm. concentration camps emerge, where they do, mm-hmm. when they do? That's, I mean, in a, in a way that's quite a tough question, I suppose, but I, I would say um, it's this is where the, the idea of a transnational history actually I think is questionable because mm. it's certainly the case that uh, people are transferring these technologies of incarceration from one place to another and that there are, uh, if you like, learning techniques and there are connections between individuals. You can trace this between individuals in, I don't know, German Southwest Africa and the United States, for example. You can see these these links being made or between uh, Franco's prison and and camp system and Himmler and the RSHA in in Nazi Germany. I'm inclined more to see this as an anthropological model of uh, of diffusion whereby modern states because they're in many ways very similar they create the same institutions it's not simply a case that one state has seen something that another one has has created and thought aha we'll do that 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 does happen i think but it it only works because the modern the nature of the modern state permits it and and the idea of of the concentration camp makes sense in that setting so i think we're we're talking uh, by necessity of uh, the modern state in terms of the age of mass politics, um, the, the beginnings of uh, the franchise to across the whole population, the need for uh, governments to control those populations, the, the rise of uh, biopolitics, the census, all the means by which the modern state and the technologies by which the modern state 
uh, monitors and controls and surveys populations. And it's really, I think, um, no coincidence that the, the crucial moment for this real structural underpinning, I think, here is World War I. Uh, because actually there you see for the first time states of emergency being declared in European countries. France is the best example where the state of emergency is declared for the whole period of the Great War until 1919. And that permits, uh, I think for the first time, this is in the age where passports and so on have just been introduced, this permits the withdrawal of legal protection from uh, human beings. So the idea that you make somebody stateless and that they have no state to represent them and their interests is really, uh, I think, a something shocking and, and something quite new in, in modern history. And that's one of the preconditions, I think, for the concentration camp. It's not, of course, that there haven't been slaves, um, lepers, uh, workhouses, people abandoned in, in all sorts of ways beforehand, but this is a specifically modern rendition of this phenomenon, I think, because you have a situation whereby, under the modern state, the idea of state belonging, identity, passports and so on, has become crucial to people's identity and self uh, sense of uh, protection. And now you see, very soon after that idea has been has come about, you see it being withdrawn. So you have World War One, which, as you say, sets mm. the preconditions mm. and the, the mechanisms of the modern mm. state. Then you get into the 30s and 40s, and when the phrase mm. the camps mm -hmm. is used now that's what people tend to think yes. about and I wonder if you could say a bit about how the idea of the camps is irrevocably changed by what or created by what happens during World War Two and the years leading up to it yes uh, I mean first of all I think although there are some confusions about types of camp a particular confusion about the Nazi concentration camp system and the Holocaust in a way that confusion is entirely understandable and forgivable because the Nazis in particular, we can come, maybe come to the Soviet Union in a moment, the Nazis in particular uh, set about creating a, a world of camps, first of all in the Third Reich itself and then across Europe. So the, really the, the Nazis and their allies created a continent of concentration camps in uh, Europe during World War II. Um, so this was a regime which rather than turning to use concentration camps in particular settings from the very start, used them as a means for bolstering its power, eliminating the opposition, uh, very deliberately uh, and very ruthlessly uh, set about creating these institutions. What's often forgotten, I think, though, is that the, the initial year or two of the Third Reich reign was characterised by the use of camps in this way, uh, but in the middle of the 30s, actually, there weren't very many people in concentration camps because the regime had effectively eliminated just about all political opposition. And uh, the growth of concentration camps after the Anschluss with Austria and then the November pogrom and the start of the war was very much also a deliberate policy by Himmler and Heydrich and um, the Reich Main Security Office, which administered the Inspectorate of Concentration Camps, in order to rebuild its own authority within uh, within the Third Reich vis-a-vis -vis other uh, Nazi agencies and to create a, a pool of uh, a reservoir of forced labourers and so on. It was not a system that was part of the Holocaust in the way that we understand it until quite late on in the war. So there were Jews in the early camps, there were Jews um, in the camps in the late 30s and 40s rounded up, but the concentration camp, the regular concentration camp system administered by the SS was not the site of the mass killing of European Jewry. Uh, that happened elsewhere, uh, and in particular, first of all, it happened in terms of mass shooting in the East, in a colonial-style face-to-face shootings, 
Uh, and then in the specially created Reinhardt camps, Belgets, Sobibor, Treblinka, uh, these were not administered by the, uh, the inspector of concentration camps. So they were outside of the regular concentration camp system. And they were in any case not concentration camps. Nobody was held there. People were just sent there and killed. A tiny number of so-called work Jews were kept there for the administration, carpenters and so on. But nobody was held there, as in a concentration camp. So the, this confusion, I think, though, is understandable because at the end of the war, when the Allies liberated the camps, uh, if liberated is the correct term, they found survivors of the Holocaust in those camps. Uh, Belsen, Dachau, Buchenwald, Mauthausen, and so on. And those people had been forcibly marched from camps further east in the face of the advance of the Red Army. So what the Western Allies in particular discovered were camps that they assumed were Holocaust camps because there were dying Jews in them. But actually most of them had only recently, I mean really recently, in the last days and weeks, arrived there. Uh, and it's taken a lot of historical research over the years to uh, get to grips with uh, how this this concentration camp system uh, worked, I think. But to, I mean, to come back to your original question, in terms of what the, the Nazis did to the notion of the concentration camp, in a sense, because it was fundamental to their regime and because, of course, that regime is regarded as the most criminal regime in 20th century uh, history, the, the image of the concentration camp, I think, has been kind of forever uh, made synonymous with Nazi crimes. Um, and in a way, as I say, I think that's entirely forgivable and understandable, but in, it's also in many ways inaccurate. And it makes sense to unpick that, not for the sake of being um, pernickety, but because it makes it uh, clearer, I think, that the idea of the concentration camp is not solely something that is uh, synonymous with genocide or with um, dictatorships or you know, fascism. But once you uh, decouple the concentration camp system from the history of the Holocaust, which is I think how it should be, then you see that the concentration camp can be more easily compared as a global phenomenon, not simply something that we associate with the Third Reich. And how does the Soviet Union's gulag mm -hmm. feature into that? This really complicates the picture because there is no single uniform type of camp in the Soviet Union. So what we think of as the gulag as a a unified system uh, was actually nothing but. So Gulag actually in the original Russian refers to the office that administered the prison system and within it over time they developed all sorts of different camps, so more or less open camps, punishment camps, work camps, coal mines, special settlements, agricultural resettlements and so on and so forth. And the, I think the, the biggest difference is that when we think of the Nazi camps we think of reasonably contained sites, physically speaking. But when we think of the Soviet Union, places like Magadan, uh, some of the, the Far Eastern camps, these are actually vast, vast regions, not simply camps in the sense of a, a small set of barracks surrounded by barbed wire. Uh, there are whole towns like uh, Nor Norilsk that are uh, founded on effectively camp labor, or, or Vorkuta. You know, these are towns that are only there because of the use of uh, of slave labour in, in the gulag. So it's completely different in many ways. And you have, I think, to uh, disaggregate these this camp, the gulag system, more generally, and to say, OK, now we're going to look at special settlements. Now we're going to look at another type of camp. Because otherwise, uh, you cannot find a single uh, archetype for the Soviet camp. You can probably find sites that are more or less like Dachau, but also ones that are very, very different. And then th we're back to the definition question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So, I mean, picking up from that, I guess there are two questions that come to my mind. One is, in the wake of World War II, what happens to camps Mm -hmm. as a phenomenon? Mm -hmm. Um, But also what happens to the camp Mm -hmm. as a metaphor, as a way Mm -hmm. of thinking about totalitarianism, Mm -hmm. about modernity? Mm -hmm. What's the history of that discourse, that um, way of using Mm -hmm. the camps to think? Should we take the first question first? Because I might need a bit of time to think about the second (laughs) one. (laughs) But the the first question is in a way... Uh, easier because actually what you see after the war is um, a flourishing of camps that they continue to exist and they're used in all sorts of different settings you see the creation of displaced persons camps uh, in Germany and Austria and Italy you see the British using uh, again detention camps on Cyprus to hold Jews from survivors from um, Central Europe trying to get to Palestine whether or not these are concentration camps according to the definition I started out with is open to doubt I would say but the survivors themselves knew very well how to play on what was happening to them in terms of what they said to the international press Uh, so referring to ships that they were being held on as floating Dachau's say slogans like we've escaped one concentration camp and we're being put in another meant to shame the British um, which didn't really work I suppose but uh, was certainly intended to make a point uh, we see camps, I think, most uh, notably in colonial settings after the war. The Mau Mau uprising in, in Kenya, um, there actually you see, I think, what by any definition is a concentration camp system. But what the war did, I think, precisely because of the association of camps with Nazi Germany, it made it easier, I think, for particularly colonial regimes, those who were morally on the right side because they defeated fascism, to in a sense, use concentration camps in settings without being questioned about it. And so to sort of link to your second question, I think one of the most interesting and important organisations with respect to this history that was set up after the war was the International Committee on Concentration Camps, set up by David Rousset in France, himself a a camp survivor, political uh, refugee, who set up this body in order to try and investigate the use of camp systems throughout the world based on the idea that only those uh, survivors who had been in uh, camps had, if you like, the bodily experience to be able to go to other countries and to judge whether particular governments or regimes were using concentration camps. So they they set up uh, this group, and there you see this sort of in-between, between the notion of the camp system as something real and something metaphorical or, or philosophical, uh, because they're, they're, these people... Uh, They immediately get accused of being, particularly in the French context where communism is so important, they get accused of being liberals, of being uh, anti-communist, because their first investigation is the Soviet Union. They respond by then carrying out investigations in uh, Greece, China, Tunisia, um, and particularly in French Algeria. But what they, they're kind of trapped in a sense because they go to Algeria with a model of the Nazi camps in their head. And so they end up concluding that there isn't a concentration camp system in Algeria because it doesn't look like what they were used to. And by doing that, they they also, even though their report is quite subtle and says people are still being held in terrible conditions in some of the Algerian prisons, uh, what gets reported is the slogan, no concentration camp system in Algeria. 
Uh, and so they're kind of hoist by their own petard. Emma Kuby has just written a really uh, excellent book on, on this subject. That's a sort of sh- a shift, if you like, from the camps as really existing places in the post-war period to the discourse on them, which is starting to reshape the way people think, that you can see in, in the C- CICRC's uh, work that there is a shift to the idea of the camps as archetypes, which is informing how people think about camps as actually existing places in colonial settings in particular after World War II. But that metaphorical use, and particularly in the French setting, I think, is is really crucial because it becomes uh, a shorthand, as you say, for totalitarianism. It's not entirely true. There are, of course, thinkers who delve into the history of the concentration camp system in Nazi Germany or, or elsewhere uh, and try to make differentiations. But the idea of the camp Uh, particularly referring to the experience of political deportees, not racial uh, deportees, as they were called, uh, becomes uh, a really fundamental one in terms of the the imagery and the iconography uh, of the camp, and particularly in post-war memory of the camp. This is very much bound up with anti-fascism, but it's bound up with a kind of anti-fascism which is universalising, doesn't name particular victim groups, and doesn't distinguish between the different experiences of the the different deportees, whether they were forced labourers, political refugees, uh, Jews, uh, other other minorities. So just kind of picking up on that and the um, political and rhetorical uses of camps, I wonder if you could talk us through the controversy in the past few months Mm -hmm. about the comparisons Mm -hmm. being made in the United States between migrant detention centres and concentration camps. Yeah, absolutely, because I think this is a prime illustration of the confusion that we started out by uh, discussing. So... Uh, when um, Ocasio-Cortez referred to the detention centres as concentration camps, the outrage that greeted her was not, I think, the fact that she'd identified that something terrible was going on in these places. It was the fact that she'd created what most people saw as a Holocaust analogy. And I think that was what annoyed people, that she dared to suggest that there was something like the Holocaust happening on the Texas-Mexico border. And, of course, there isn't. But the comparison is also a false one. As we've discussed, actually, the SS's regular concentration camp system was not the site of the Holocaust of Europe's Jews. And actually, when you look at the the regular concentration camp system, and particularly in the the years up to World War II, the holding of political enemies, asocials, Roma, uh, beggars, prostitutes, and so on, the attempt to cleanse Aryan society... Uh, by getting rid of polluting elements. This is quite similar to what's going on in lots of other places around the world, then and now. Um, And once you strip away the Holocaust analogy, which uh, I think Ocasio-Cortez didn't help herself, of course, by tweeting in slogans like never again and so on, but she didn't do it really explicitly, but I think it it was there. Once you strip that away, actually her point then becomes a tougher one to deal with, which is, what is she saying about those centres? What's actually happening in them? And there, I think uh, we have to face some pretty unpleasant 
truths in terms of the hygiene facilities, the reported uh, brutality of uh, the border guards towards the people that are in those facilities, including children, the withholding of food and uh, showers and clothing and so on. The reports, um, these are, I mean, not uh, random reports, reports drawn up by US Congress people. Uh, these are serious allegations, and we might not call them but still, I think, might not want to call them concentration camps because there are people speaking on behalf of the migrants in them. Nevertheless, what the analogy and the outcry over it did was to distract us, deflect our attention away from thinking about whether we think this is acceptable or not, irrespective of what it's called. And actually, what was right about what Ocasio-Cortez was saying was that America should not be treating people in this way. This is a country of immigrants built on immigration and these are simply people who are trying to seek a better life for themselves and their children and what is wrong with that uh, in a country that relies on immigration for the notion of its of its own self-identity. So I think that the the camp analogy was or if you like the holocaust analogy was unfortunate but the attempt to force us to think about the content of that and to actually say what's happening in those places and how can modern America tolerate it was a really serious question. I wonder if you'd be willing to say a bit about the statement issued by the U.S. Holocaust Memorial mm -hmm. Museum, sort of distancing itself, I guess, from, um, I think a member of its staff mm -hmm. tweeted in support yes. of her remarks, and mm -hmm. then they issued quite a full statement, mm -hmm. not just about, well, not referring to her yeah. at all, but talking really about how the Holocaust is not something to be compared mm -hmm. with anything. Well, I was one of the signatories of a letter protesting against um, the USHMM's uh, response. So I thought it was ill-considered, hasty and unfortunate because, and very strange actually, because USHMM is an, a wonderful institution and amongst its bodies is the Committee on Conscience, which is a body which seeks to identify where genocide-like atrocities are occurring in the modern world. A body like that sitting in the Holocaust Museum suggests that a group of experts whose basic expertise is the Holocaust have the credentials to identify genocide-like occurrences in the modern world. That's innately a form of comparison. So to then suddenly tweet and say one mustn't compare the Holocaust with anything is an echo of knee-jerk, mainstream, popular responses. And actually it's precisely the sort of thing that the USHMM should be educating people about, to say everything we do is comparative. There is no such thing as understanding something in light only of itself. You can't uh, think of the Holocaust, uh, you, you can't defend the notion, even if you want to, of the uniqueness of the Holocaust without it being compared to something else. Uh, how, otherwise, how is it unique? Uh, so the idea that you should stop people from compar comparing because it's somehow morally reprehensible is, is really bizarre. And although they haven't retracted that, my hope is that it doesn't have any negative impact on the day-to-day -day work of the museum or the Committee on Conscience. I, I was struck when I was reading your book by something you say that um, seemed relevant in this context, that mm -hmm. there's a 
attention for anybody who's writing about the camps, mm-hmm. about the Holocaust, that there is a way of describing them that is in terms of rationality and is prosaic, and this is the way that historians tend to write about them, you know, like mm-hmm. in terms of their development over time and as a logical development of a certain way of thinking about state and control and mm-hmm. power and mm-hmm. populations and superfluous peoples. And then there's a point where rationality's power to explain mm-hmm. anything fails. And that's the point where it becomes indescribable and inexplicable. Mm-hmm. And that's, in some sense, that's what the Holocaust Museum statement was gesturing at. But I guess for you as a historian, mm-hmm. how do you balance when you're writing about the camps or mm-hmm. your project that I understand you're, you're finishing now about the aftermath mm-hmm. of the camps? Mm-hmm. How do you balance the prosaic and the unspeakable in trying to chronicle this? I think the same is probably true for any other case of genocide. I think if you're writing about Rwanda, there comes a point where you're faced with the same words failing problem. Um, but in the case of the Holocaust, for all sorts of reasons, that very large theoretical literature, philosophy after Auschwitz, questions about the limits of representation and so on, uh, is particularly well-developed. And first of all, that was, for me, intellectually formative when I was a graduate student. Those debates I found especially interesting, and that's when I, I really developed an interest in theory of history and methodology and so on. Which means that when I write about this now, even... You mentioned my current project on the International Tracing Service. In a way, it's an extremely positivist project because I'm drowning in documents and the only way I can keep control of it is by, in a sense, downloading everything straight onto the page and I have to go back and worry about trying to make some kind of critical analysis of it later on. Um, But I think you're always faced with exactly the problem you describe and I try to address it by, uh, first of all, describing it in those rational terms. And that's obviously contradictory but I think there's no way around that other than silence which is not appropriate so to try and uh, describe the irrational or the something that's not easily cognizable in rational historiographical terms uh, is contradictory but nevertheless um, has to be one way in which we start doing it so talking using concepts from anthropology and other Uh, disciplines I think helps here thinking about the carnivalesque or transgression or sacrifice uh, or the German term Rausch this idea of energy or uh, this transgressive drive to destroy these things all help in some ways but they're still they still remain rational discussions of the the phenomenon which is why I think some of the recent work that I suppose we might call the forensic turn or the spectral turn in Holocaust studies is quite useful because it's getting at things through bodily experience and the emotions rather than through rational descriptions of causation and human behavior but I think the the way to the way I try and address it is to suggest in the writing that this is what's going on so rather than uh, write in the conventional way of a historian as the kind of godlike narrator uh, who's not present but is just telling the reader this is what happened to to intervene and to say actually when producing this analysis we are faced with this problem and so to bring the reader up and say actually now you have to do some work as well to think about how to address this because we're we're trapped that we have to use language to describe it but as soon as we do of course uh, we run out of things to say and uh, unless historians begin to think it's acceptable to write in the style, let's say, of high modernist fiction or of experimental postmodern fiction, uh, and there are some good examples of Holocaust fiction in that style, then we won't 
really be able to address it in, in any other way. So I think, on the one hand, we have to rely on rational categories and, and uh, methods, but on the other hand, we can break those narratives and discussions by, uh, by raising the problem itself. Many thanks to Dan Stone for taking part in this podcast. His book, Concentration Camps, A Very Short Introduction, is published by Oxford University Press. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.